And that is our series beginning two weekends from right now. It's our Christmas series. Begins the week before Thanksgiving. And by the way, the word genius is overrated or overused, I should say, but certainly not in this case. What you just saw was time-lapse video of the hand of Dale Poor, who creates all our sets, and he was freehanding our next design. So that's what the whole stage will look like in just a couple of weeks. Now, I miss, it's not, I miss the stage not turning today. There's no spaceship, there's no vet, there's no monster behind me today. I don't know if I'll know how to preach. But uh, it's, we're all getting ready for Christmas around here. Uh, months ago, I began to read the Christmas story just like I've never read it before, and I was amazed at how five times God interrupted the silence and darkness with greetings from heaven. And i got to promise you, this is going to be an extraordinary Christmas season. For all of you who've ever felt like maybe you were passed over, or you know someone who feels passed over, it's interesting to me that the New Testament begins. After 400 years of silence, the kickoff for the New Testament begins when an angel shows up to talk to a man late in life who feels like life has passed him by and brings the good news that life is beginning again. And so I got to tell you, that starts two weekends from right now. And one thing that's different about the Christmas season is that uh, you'll always get a mini invite here when we start a new series. But unlike the ones that we normally have that are the size of a calling card, we're actually giving you like a Christmas card to give out to your friends. It'll have the, the, the image of the series on the front. The inside talks about the series. The back has information about the service times in the church. Uh, I just got an email from Rick Warren last week. and He said that the four most likely times that your friends... Uh, are likely to respond to an invitation to attend church, or, and I'll count these down from four to one. Number four is time change Sunday, the one where you gain an hour, not lose an hour. But, but time change Sunday, number three is Mother's Day, number two is Easter, number one is the Christmas season. And you guys are so good at inviting your friends. We've grown. Last weekend, we had a non-Christmas Easter record. We had almost 6,500 people who gathered here at New Spring. And that's because of you. You guys are inviting your friends. So we want to make it easier for you. Next week, we'll have these out in the foyer by the handfuls. So if you want to invite friends to be part of the Christmas series, I promise you it's going to be life-changing. And I probably should speak about the Christmas video, Christmas concert video that you just saw. Because as of the last service, we had about 200 tickets left. I have gotten conflicting word about the concert. I have been told that we are sold out, but I also have official word that there are six tickets left, and the only way to get them is electronic. And so if you have to get your phone out right now, I'll know what you're doing. Just make sure the ringer is off. But if we're sold out, you, you, you can't call the office and say, can you get me in? Okay, we're a large church with a small auditorium, so uh, we're, we're from either sold out or almost sold out for the Christmas concert. Well, you know I'm not in a series per se right now because you can tell we don't have anything behind me on the stage. I should also tell you in the essence of full disclosure, I really wasn't supposed to be here these next two weeks. Months ago when I was planning my schedule, I had scheduled myself to be off these two weekends. Uh, Back when dad died in July, I saw that I was going to have a pretty busy schedule. and So honestly, I had planned to be down in central Texas these two weekends working on the Christmas series. But the schedule kind of changed for me, and I wound up being here. And not only did I wind up being here, I got to tell you, I woke up uh, several weeks ago with something that was just heavily on my mind, and I had a sense that God wanted me to bring this message to you. 
I don't think that there are any accidents with God. I don't think it's an accident that I'm here. And I don't think it's an accident that God gave me this thought. Normally our series are planned months in advance, but this is something that just came up in my heart and mind a few weeks ago. And I need to follow a flight plan with you so that you will understand. What I'm going to preach today and next week is really one message. I'm just going to get halfway through today. And the really interesting part comes next week. If you'll, if you'll allow me today, I just need to set the dominoes up. And so with that in mind, would you just not do me a favor, but would you do God the honor of just listening today and processing this? I also need to tell you, as I've told you so many times, being ADD, it's my nature if I'm listening to a message to zone in and zone out and zone back in. This is a message where you won't want to do that because there is a, a scriptural logic trail that if we lose it for a moment, we might not receive the full impact of what God wants me to learn or what God wants each of us to learn tonight. Our message is entitled, In Jesus' Name. In Jesus' Name. What does that phrase mean to you? I want to take you to a particular setting because it is where Jesus basically trots out the concept of doing something in Jesus' name. It is only a few hours before Jesus will be arrested and subsequently crucified. He's already had the last meal, the Passover with the disciples. Judas has left to go sell Jesus to his enemies. And a little later they will go out to the Garden of Olives where Jesus will pray, where his arrest will occur. He'll be tried in a kangaroo court and executed on a cross. But in these last few hours, Jesus is with his disciples. And if you've ever had to talk or the opportunity to talk to the people that are very important to you in a limited time frame when you're going to have to leave them behind, you know what it's like to give final instructions to the people that matter to you the most. And in this context, Jesus is going to talk to the disciples about praying in his name. I want to cherry pick, if I could please, chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, because all this occurs in John's Gospel, chapters 14, 15, and 16. And this is more than you want to know, probably. But the interesting thing about the Gospel of John, and let me just back up for a moment. There are four Gospels. Gospels means the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they each have an emphasis. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus as uh, the the servant, Luke, presents Jesus as human, and John presents Jesus as God. Even though all those Gospels present all four aspects, those are the emphases of each one of the Gospels. What makes John a very peculiar Gospel is most of the Gospel of John is written in the last week of Jesus' life or about the last week of Jesus' life. And John chapters 14, 15, and 16 actually have to do with this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at the end. Now, I want to pull out of that John chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus said, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Now, as I said, I cherry picked that. Because in this last conversation Jesus has with his disciples, six times... He will tell them that when they pray, they should ask in his name. Two things real quickly. This is something new. The disciples have been praying all their lives. They grew up good Jewish boys, most of them. They have prayed a lot throughout their lives. Then they met Jesus. 
And they prayed for a while, knowing Jesus, watched him pray, realized that he was praying at a level that they didn't understand, and they asked him to teach them to pray. And so Jesus taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is a formula for prayer. You know, sometimes we recite the Lord's Prayer. I don't guess there's anything wrong with that. That would be like drinking concentrate. The Lord's Prayer is a paradigm. It's a, it's a plan for prayer. So they had prayed after they knew the Lord's Prayer. So they prayed before they knew Jesus, after they knew Jesus, after they learned the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus tells them after three years with him, until now, you haven't prayed this way. So this represents something new. The second thought to me is it's got to be significant because six times Jesus tells them in this sensitive moment that when they pray, they are to pray in Jesus' name. He tells them repeatedly, and then he puts carrots out there for them. He said, if you pray in my name, you will get what you ask for. If you pray in my name, you will be heard. If you pray in my name, your joy will be full. So for him to just heavily um, repeat this expression in this sensitive moment tells me that it's something new and it's something significant. Now, a lot of you I know are still searching. Your spiritual journey perhaps has just begun and maybe it isn't even resolved. Others of us grew up in a Christian environment. Now, here's the thing. If you grew up in any kind of Christian environment at all, chances are you were taught to add this phrase to your prayer. When you grew up Catholic or Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever, you were taught to pray in Jesus' name. I don't even know when I was taught that the first time. It was before the meter of my memory started running. But I remember having Sunday school teachers tell me, when you pray, you pray in Jesus' name. So frequently, those have been the last three words of every prayer I've prayed before the word amen, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Is that what you were taught? And the fact of the matter is, I got to be honest with you, I prayed those words as if those three words would have special significance by themselves. And oftentimes, when I got to that part of my prayer, my mind had already left my praying. I, my mind was back in what I asked God for. But by the time I got to in Jesus' name, I had kind of checked out because I was saying a formulaic expression. Now, let me ask you a question. For Jesus to emphasize that six times in such a sensitive conversation and to say to them, up till now you haven't asked in my name, don't you sort of get the feeling that what he was asking them to do was a little bit more than just saying the secret phrase? I mean, this is more than open sesame or, you know, mother may I or the secret handshake. You know, where I work out, no, there's no, nobody who mans the workout room, so you have to enter a code. I mean, was that what Jesus was saying? I want you to say the secret phrase. Up till now, boys, you haven't known the secret phrase. I'm giving you the secret phrase. Just add the words in Jesus' name to your prayer. All y'all are too young to remember, but back in the 60s, there was a comedian that had a routine. And his comedy routine was based on the sound that would come up from the floor in a liturgical worship experience. You know, when people just repeat large sections of creeds or large sections of worship books and not really have their heart in it, and he would use the word humada, 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 humada. I used to think that was the funniest thing when I was a kid until I was invited to a worship experience. It wasn't a Christian experience, but it was a friend of mine who led a, Christian, led a worship experience, and it was just long sections of repeating, and that's exactly what it sounded like. I heard it went humada, 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 humada. Any of you guys ever been in an experience like that? The liturgical service is like, you know, people's emotion is not really engaged. It's just repeating. I mean, I've been in church services where the Lord's Prayer has been repeated. 
And have you ever heard it like this? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's that about? Are we going to get some sort of gold stamp because we said the words? And is that what Jesus' name is all about? I think for Jesus to emphasize it like he did, there's got to be more to it than that. And here's the thing. That's just for starters. I won't talk about this today, but he didn't just say that we're to pray in his name. He said we're to gather in his name. He said that we were to serve in his name. We were to give in his name. See, you know, a New Spring probably have 700 people volunteering today, but some of us served in Jesus' name. And you guys are so generous with God's work. But some of you gave in Jesus' name. See, what we're going to discover in these two talks, and this is what I couldn't get out of my mind the morning I woke up with this on my mind, is that when you do something in Jesus' name, it elevates even the most mundane thing to the sublime. Well, I want us to be practical today, and if you'll just work with me for a few moments, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to do something in someone else's name? Let's just start in a generic sense. What does it mean to do something in someone else's name? Well, let's start with this. Names are significant to us for two reasons, because names conjure up images of someone's character, and they conjure up concepts about our relationship with that individual. When someone mentions a name to you and you don't know the person, isn't it interesting what we say in response to that? You know, if you hear someone say, do you know so-and-so? And you say, you know, I'm drawing a blank. What that means is you said a name and that name doesn't mean anything to me. I don't have any character to attach that to. I don't have any relationship with that person. If, on the other hand, today, I mention the name Barack Obama to you, that's got meaning depending upon how you feel about the president. If you love the president, you know, you just have good feelings toward him and, and you wish him well and, and you're attracted to his family and, and you like his policies and on top of that, you like him personally. If I mention his name to you, you have a character that you associate with that name. It isn't just letters that form words. You think about the character of the individual. Oh, we live in a very polarized environment. I could mention any president's name. It could be that you're not fond of him and you don't like his policies. And so whenever I mention the name, it conjures up negative issues for you. You see what I'm saying? A name communicates characteristics. It isn't just words. I hate to be personal today, but let me just use my own name. When I say the name Mark Hoover, what does it mean to you? For some of you, it's like, well, I don't really know him. I listen to him speak. I kind of feel like I know him because he's always telling these crazy stories about himself. On the other hand, some of you know me, and you've known me for a long time. Some of you I've played golf with. Some of you I've had a meal with. Others of you have been at New Spring for years. But if you were to go talk to Billy Poor, who's on a campus somewhere today, Billy Poor is our executive pastor. He, outside of my family, he's my closest friend. If you go talk to Billy Poor, he would know me as a strategic leader, somebody that he works with seven days a week, and a friend. If you go out there in the lobby and you find Jonathan, and you say Mark Hoover to him, to him, he, he, he conjures up images of a dad. My mother was in our last service. If you go to my mother and say the name Mark Hoover conjures up an image, she can remember an image of holding a little baby in Harris Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, and raising a difficult kid. That probably is what comes to her mind. 
Mary Alice's over in Discovery across the way. And if you go over to her and you mention the name Mark Hoover, it conjures up images of a husband. You see what I'm saying? When we hear a name, it says characteristics and it talks about relationship. Now, guys, just to be perfectly honest with you today, when I say the name Jesus, not God, Jesus, what does it conjure up for you? You know what I think is peculiar about that? I think if we were to be totally honest in a lot of Christian churches today, there are a lot, maybe a lot of people have to say, I'm sort of drawing a blank here. I have sort of ideas about a historical person or religious leader, but as far as like having a, a relationship with Jesus or really knowing what he's about, I'm sort of drawing a blank. And to be honest, with a lot of people today, even in churches, I think there are other names that would mean more. Lady Gaga, LeBron. Warren Buffett, Taylor Swift. What does the name Jesus mean to you? I'm going to do my best to lay out a case for you, and I may fail. You may feel that I'm inadequate laying this case out, and you're the jury. I'm just going to try to try a case for you for a moment. But I want to make the case to you today that the name of Jesus is more important to you than any other name. I want to try to make the case that the name of Jesus is more important than your own name or any leader. If I came to you today and I said to you, I've got a political problem, and I told you what my political problem is, and you said to me, Mark, President Obama is my closest friend. We went to high school together. We talk every day on the phone. Every day. We, we get just whatever he's doing. He makes time. We talk on the phone. The last thing he always says to me before we get off the phone is, there anything I can do for you? If I told you I had a political problem and you told me that, what are you trying to tell me? You're trying to tell me I'm close to power. But even the best presidents are limited. All presidents are mortal. Presidents and kings and queens come and go. If you are the friend of Jesus, you are really close to power because I want to give you three reasons. Number one, he is God. He is God. If you know Jesus, you know God on a first name basis. I just said a huge statement. I don't think I'll ever say anything bigger. Let me say it one more time. If you, and I didn't say if you know about Jesus. I didn't say if you were a Christian, if you're religious. If you know Jesus, you know God on a first name basis. Let me share with you this, because this isn't something that a lot of times people, people talk about. You know, we sort of see Jesus as this baby in a manger in Bethlehem. We see him as this itinerant uh, teacher. We see him as this carpenter from Nazareth. We may even see him dying on a cross. But what we have to understand is that Jesus was not a human who became God. He was God who became human. And the Bible spells that out for us in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. In other words, before time was created, before the meter of the clock started running, Jesus was already here. The Word was with God. That's a Greek expression that means face-to-face, -face, denoting equality. And then this simple statement, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him, which raises a kind of irony because the cross that Jesus died on was a tree that he made. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He came into our world 
and was born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, God and human at the same time, because the problem was we have no way of getting to God. We can't live a perfect life. We needed a human to come and live the life that we cannot live and then turn around and die in our place, the death that we could not die so that we could have a way to God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the angel says the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the religious crowd were picking up rocks to stone him. And Jesus said, for which miracle are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any of these miracles, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, guys, here's the deal. You could hear my talk today, and you can say, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I think he's a human. If he did exist, I think he was a human like anyone else. And that's a fair, that's a fair point of view. But let me tell you this, what we cannot say is that the Bible does not claim that Jesus is God. What we cannot say is that Jesus did not claim to be God, because unequivocally, unquestionably, the Bible declares and Jesus declares that he is God. The great intellectual, the great Oxford intellectual C.S. Lewis for whom we're so grateful for all of his great writings and all the Narnia series and everything. He, he has a great statement on this. I'd like for you to hear the full statement. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. When you pray in Jesus' name, you pray in the name of God himself. You know God on a first-name basis. There is a second reason why it's important for us to pray in Jesus' name, and it's that he is alive. You know, I think we have a hard time wrapping our arms around this because no matter how many Easter services we go to, it's so hard to get the cross out of our minds. And it's, we should remember the cross because that's where Jesus died for our sins. If you're wearing a crucifix today, let that be a memory of where he was, but that's not where he is. Because three days after Jesus died on the cross, he walked out of the grave under his own power as nobody else has ever done. And today he is alive. And beyond that, as he says to John in Revelation chapter 1, I am the one who was and is and is to come. And let me go a step further. As we'll see next week, Jesus said, where two or more gathered in my name, I am in the midst of him. That means, are you ready for this? Jesus is here at New Spring today. Jesus is is here. Wow. You know why some of our applause is tepid? We're not really sure we believe that yet. But it's true. Every once in a while, we'll have a celebrity walk in at New Spring, some political leader, 
I remember we had a rock star walk in one weekend. If I turned to look, I, I remember this guy when I got my driver's license. I mean, the first, I mean, I went out to drive by myself for the first time. His song was on the radio, and, I, and he's here at New Spring. And people, did you, did you know who was at New Spring today? Let me ask you, do you know who was at New Spring today? Jesus was here. Jesus is here. See, we have a hard time. I just feel it even now in the room. We have a hard time wrapping our arms around that because we know historical Jesus and we know religious Jesus, but do you know alive Jesus? Do you know the one who is here today with the same power that he had while he was on earth and the same power that he had in eternity past when he stepped out on nothing and created everything that ever was? That is the Jesus in whose name we pray. He is alive. I'm going to need you to really listen now because I'm going to go into a little bit of a controversial area, but I want us to dial this in. Sometimes I hear people make two faulty statements. I make the second one a lot myself. And when I hear these statements, instantly I contextualize them. I know where people are coming from, but technically speaking, neither one of these statements is really true. Or the second one is true, but in a secondary sense. I hear people say, I accepted God. Nobody accepts God. It, that, that's a, an impossible thing to do. You don't accept God. The challenge is in getting God to accept us. The thing about it is, God, to be honest, and I mean this in a, in a, in a way of speaking, I hope you'll understand, God is our problem. Because, see, God is a holy God, and we're flawed people. And the question is, how can flawed people be with a holy God? So uh, flawed people can't just accept God, and God can't accept flawed people without Jesus. Let me read to you what the Bible has to say. In John 3, verse 17, the Bible says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, through Jesus. God made Christ. This is one of my favorite verses, and yet it's still hard for me to understand. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. See, you don't accept God. You accept Christ, and Christ is your way to God. One translation says God has made him to be sin for us so that we might be created or made the righteousness of God in him. Let us drop, dial it in and understand the scriptures well. The message is this. I am a sinner. There is no way I can get to God. I cannot accept God, and God cannot accept me. But God became human. God came in my place. Jesus came into our world. He lived the perfect life that I could not live. For 33 years, he lived in perfect righteousness. Then he took that perfect record, and he lay down on a Roman cross, and God punished him for everything that I ever did so that my sin was transferred to him, and his righteousness is transferred to me. And now carrying the righteousness of Christ, God can accept me because I have accepted Christ. That is the message of the gospel. The second statement is technically true, but as you can understand only in a secondary sense, and that statement is, I have a relationship with God. The reality is, I have a relationship with Christ. I have a relationship with Jesus. And based on that, I now have a relationship with God. 
One of my favorite stories in history, and I don't know if it's true, but it's told as if it were true. In the days of the Civil War, there was a soldier who wanted to get in to see President Lincoln. But unfortunately, there was a line of people in his way, and he was told that there was no way that Lincoln could see him that day. There were a cadre of people wanting political favors, and after all, he was just an ordinary soldier. And he went out and sat on the park bench because his problem was big. All of a sudden, a little kid came over to him and said, Soldier, what's your problem? He said, well, I, I was going to see President Lincoln, but I couldn't get in. And the, and the kid grabbed him by the arm and said, come with me. And at first, the soldier thought, what in the world's going on here? But the kid began to drag him. And sure enough, the doors were opening. And he went past that long line of people waiting to see the president. And the kid dragged him right into the room where President Lincoln was and said, Dad, this guy's got a problem he wants to talk to. It was Tad Lincoln. You understand, that's how I got in to see the Father. I didn't accept God. I don't have a relationship with God. I have a relationship with Jesus. He brought me in to see God. Now I have a relationship with God. My goodness, the only reason I'm forgiven is because Jesus asked him to forgive me. In Ephesians 4.32, the Bible says, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Do you realize... The reason I'm forgiven is Jesus asked God to forgive me. And not only did he ask God to forgive me, he's making intercession for me. Read this, Romans 8, 34. Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So that means when I go talk to God, if I'm praying in Jesus' name, Jesus is there whispering into the Father's ear saying, now, Father, you know Mark is a real a screw. Jesus wouldn't use the word screw up, would he? He's saying, now, you, you know Mark, but I love him. And Father, you love him because I love him. And would you help him? Maybe to make it simple, as we get ready to close out today, let's just hear the words of Philippians. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you have just prayed in the name that is higher than any other name. Now, we began this talk with saying, we're guessing that when Jesus said to pray in his name, it's a little more than tacking on a phrase at the end of our prayer. Let me tell you what I think it means to pray in Jesus' name. Let me tell you a story first. About 10 or 12 years ago, I was doing a conference for a church in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'd done several conferences for this church, and I, I loved being there because it's in the shadow of the Pentagon, and there's a lot of military brass that went to this particular church. And I remember that there was a general there in that church. I'd say he's young because he'd be young to me now. He was in his mid-40s. But he went to the pastor, and he said, I would like to take Pastor Mark to play golf at Andrews Air Force Base Golf Course. And when I heard about that instantly, I was excited about that. Not, not to play golf so much, but Andrews Air Force Base, man, that, that's a historical place. And I don't know if any of you are in the military and you've ever played golf at Andrews Air Force Base, but it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting in the parking lot because there's a sort of VIP parking area in the parking lot at Andrews. And, and, and if I remember right, it's like they, they've got these, you know, concrete stops at the end of parking places, you know, the, the typical orange or yellow, but they have unusual names on them, like chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, secretary of the Army, and, and then it goes down to stars, you know, for the generals. 
And we pulled into that parking lot, and we pulled into one of the places that had stars on it because I was with the general. And we came up to the first tee box. And honestly, folks, there was a line of about 30 golfers in carts waiting to tee off at the tee box. And I thought, it's going to take forever. I thought, this is the biggest line I've ever seen at the first tee box. It's going to take an hour for us to get ready to tee off. When all of a sudden, the starter called out the name of the general I was with. And we went right past all the others, all those lieutenants and captains and majors and lieutenant colonels and full bird colonels. We went right past them with all them waiting in line. We teed off first. And after playing a little while, somebody came up to me and said, sir, may I clean your golf clubs? And they don't do that at Braeburn. And they would say, sir, can I bring you some juice? Can I bring you a snack? I mean, for 18 holes, I walked around as a VIP, and I got VIP treatment. Now, here's what you should know. I have never been in the military. I don't have any rank. The closest thing I've ever gotten to being in the military is watching Saving Private Ryan. I have no... (laughs) I have no standing at Andrews Air Force Base golf course. Somebody come up to me, could come up to me and say, what in the world are you doing on this golf course? Because you've never been in the military. You don't have any rank. You don't have any station. You don't have any right to be here. Why are you getting all this treatment? You would be right. I would have no standing to be there. The only thing is, I'm not there in my name. I'm not there in my name. I'm there in his name. And being there in his name, all of the rank and station that belongs to him for that moment belongs to me. And all the honor that he so richly deserves by a colorful and credentialed military career for a brief moment belongs to me. And all of that station that has been earned by years of serving his country and training at At West Point, all those things for just a few moments belong to me because I'm not there in my name. I'm there in his name. I have no right to be there, but as long as I'm in his name, I experience everything that he gets to experience. How many of us have tried to pray? Maybe kneeling in prayer, maybe walking around, maybe driving in your car and you're praying and you begin to talk to God and there's this little you know, an audible voice that begins to speak to you that says something like this, what right do you have to talk to God? You know what you did. What makes you think God will hear your prayer? All that you promised God you'd never do that again, but you've done it again and again and again and again. What right does somebody like you have to walk into the presence of the God of the universe and ask him for something? And the next time you hear that voice, you just remind that voice, I'm not here in my name. I'm here in Jesus' name. And all the rank and the station and the power that he so richly enjoys now belongs to me because he's invited me to come here in his name. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. When I couldn't get this off my mind the other morning, the only thing I could think about is, and this is okay, why do we put in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers? You know, you don't show your credentials when you're leaving the room. You show your credentials when you come into the room. I guess it probably doesn't really matter when you put Jesus' name in there. But you know, maybe we need to start opening our prayers in Jesus' name. 
Father, I know I have no right to be here on my own. Lord, you know how I fell in so many ways. You know how flawed I am. God, you know all the problems I have, but I'm not here in my name today. I am here in Jesus' name. He instructed me to come here in his name. He authorized, he authorized me coming in his name. So, Father, I'm coming to you in Jesus' name. He has asked me to use his card, and I've come, and I've brought this petition to you. Now, here's the thing. In the next few moments, some of you are going to have the assurance that you're going to heaven, and here is how you're going to have it. Throughout your life, you have been trying to be good enough for God to accept you. And you may have even heard the gospel time and time again. But still, you have this feeling inside of you that somehow you've got to goose up your resume and bring it to God so that God will say, okay, you're good enough to get in now. I want to show you in the next few moments, there is only one name through which you can get into heaven, and it isn't yours, and it's not mine, and that's good news, because I don't know about you, I just can never seem to goose up my resume appropriately. Listen to the words of the Bible. To all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Wow, what language is that? For those who will put their confidences in his name, he authorizes them to become children of God. I have a right to be part of God's family, not because of who I am, but because I've come in Jesus' name. For God, this is John 3, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And maybe the simplest of all statements from 1 John 1, or 1 John 3. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you were to ask me today, Mark, do you know for sure you're going to heaven when you die? The answer to that question is yes, but it's not because of who I am. It's because I am coming in the name of Jesus. All the rank, all the station, all the things that he deserves become mine because I've come to God believing in Jesus' name. Has that happened for you yet? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking you to join our church. I'm asking you to believe on the name of Jesus Christ because the Bible says when that happens, God gives you the right to become his eternal daughter, his eternal son. If you haven't had that moment, I want to pray with you now. I want to pray it slowly because it's not a humida humida kind of thing. This is one of those things where you really have to mean it, okay? But I want to pray it slowly so that you can think about it. And if you want to own these, these words, you can pray this prayer with me. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I'm a flawed sinner. I realize I have no right to eternal life. But I believe Jesus lived a perfect life. I believe he died to pay for my sins. And so I come in his name. I come to you in the name of Jesus. I ask you to forgive me for Jesus' sake. I ask you to make me God's child. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, you made the greatest decision of your life. And I, and I know you may have questions, so I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet. Please come get it at guest services. a DVD and a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions plus a coupon for a new Bible. You can get it at guest services out in the lobby or back by the coffee shop. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. They won't hassle you or stalk you. They will give you this. Please get it before you leave today. We'll pick up this message next week. Okay, see you next week. God bless.